<laughs> yeah, how does Mimi react to being leashed outside? I've seen videos of cats that just flop on the ground. I've never told you guys about her love for the outdoors. I think you've touched on it, but... Oh, she's a freak. Yeah. <laughs> What's that, Katie? Did she go camping with you? No, she doesn't love the outdoors that much. This episode of Talking Underwater is brought to you by Census, a Xylem brand. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. I'm Lauren Delcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we'll discuss virtual events in the water industry amid COVID-19 concerns. We'll also touch on the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act and its impacts on the water industry. Additionally, we'll explore the recently Senate-approved Navajo-Utah Water Rights Settlement Act and its wider implications. Finally, our interview this month is with Cynthia Kohler, the Executive Director of the Water Now Alliance, about what the Alliance does in its Tap into Resilience initiative. We also touched on green infrastructure and the coronavirus stimulus packages. Yeah, so first let's start with the news from WEFTEC that just came out. WEFTEC is going fully virtual in October. They had tossed around the idea of doing a hybrid event where there would be some in-person elements to the show with a lot of other digital digital aspects, but they're going fully digital now after community communicating with a bunch of their attendees and board members and whatnot, and they're calling it WEFTEC Connect. It will still be from October 5th through the 9th in, of this year, 2020, and the show will include a blend of live and pre-recorded technical content, uh, opportunities for one-to-one appointment meetings with exhibitors, live chats between individuals and groups, and virtual meeting rooms so that you can still get a lot of the networking that you would get just by going to networking rooms and stuff like that at the show. So they're really trying to capture a lot of what makes WebTech really great every single year and just bring it into this digital medium, and they're exploring what sounds like a lot of opportunities there. So if you want to learn more about it, definitely check out the article we have on our website, and WEF.org has a ton of resources on this as well. It's interesting to see how different organizations are adapting to the virtual event environment in different ways. Um, I'm curious if you guys have been in any uh, virtual events thus far and kind of what your experience has been like there. The only virtual events I've participated in so far have been webinars which have all been really good, but I there are a couple of shows in the fall that I'm waiting to see if they're going to go virtual or not. So I'm wondering now if, you know, since West Tech made this decision, what other shows are going to start to do with the fall. So we'll see. Yeah, my experience has mostly been with webinars as well. The Water Week in Washington had their webinar that was a ton of speakers. It was super rapid fire. There's a lot of information packed into a really short time frame there. That was really interesting. But in terms of virtual show space and that kind of thing, I haven't really seen that much from associations and whatnot in the industry. 
Uh, I've actually also attended a couple of virtual networking events, which have been pretty cool to see how those unfold. I've been in a few where you go off into breakout rooms with other attendees and you have an opportunity to virtually meet new people and have discussion topics in those before coming back to the whole group. So that's been pretty cool. I'm wondering if this WebTech event this year is going to be like that or how they expand on some of these tools. So. I'm excited to see and you know, look forward to connecting with listeners uh, yet virtually there. Um, I also wanted to touch just briefly on another piece of news that impacts my facet of the industry, the residential commercial water treatment industry, um, pretty strongly. It's the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act was passed on June 5th, 2020. And this is an extension of the original Paycheck Protection Program, which was passed under the CARES Act earlier this year. And the new act adjusts the amount of loan needed for payroll by 60%. It extends the time period to use funds under the original PPE program. And it also pushes back the original deadline to rehire workers. And finally, it also extends the repayment term from two years to five years. So this is pretty significant because it was bipartisanly passed relatively quickly in that time frame to address some of the initial flaws of the original Paycheck Protection Program. And uh, small business owners are pretty hopeful that this will help address some of those original difficulties and make that act a little bit more sustainable. Uh, so I just wanted to I just wanted to bring it up briefly because it does impact my audience pretty strongly and. Uh, I hope it bodes well for the future and for business success into 2021. Uh, and then the final item that I brought to the table today that I wanted to talk about, this is pretty recent. This is within the past week, actually. Um, it's the Navajo-Utah Water Rights Settlement Act was just passed by the U.S. Senate this week. Um, so the bill, which is still awaiting bipartisan support, but it provides the Navajo Nation with the right to 81,500 acre feet of water a year from Utah's Colorado River Basin. And it also allocates uh, $210 million for water projects in the Navajo Nation. And the state of Utah would contribute $8 million towards the settlement under the agreement. And they've actually already approved the funding for that, which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, this piece of news really just uh, struck my heart, I think, and also is very important and timely in light of how the Navajo Nation has been hit by coronavirus. So according to CNN and data by John Hopkins, Navajo Nation has surpassed New York and New Jersey for the highest per capita coronavirus infection rate in the U.S. Um, and, you know, as we all know, water and health are inexplicable inexplicably tied in more ways than one, like a, an access to sanitation definitely helps you wash your hands and uh, reduce spread of virus and disease. So it's pretty great news and look forward to seeing the progress of the act as it moves down the line. Yeah, and just to touch on that, the, the disparity in water access and affordability, especially with Native Americans is drastically different from white people, especially. Um, if you use white people as they, the control group for access and affordability, uh, black and Latinx people are two times more likely to not have indoor plumbing, and Native Americans are 19 times more likely to not have indoor plumbing. That's a huge disparity between 
between all these people. So having a program like this is so critical for them. And like you said, like the sanitation aspect here is so, so important for staving off things like COVID-19. And it's like horrifying to see how much it's ravaging their communities. Yeah, absolutely. And Bob, where was that data point from, by the way? So that's from Dig Deep. They have a close the water gap report. It looks like they did it in conjunction with the U.S. Water Alliance. But I found that on their Facebook page, and it's particularly interesting. Dig Deep does great work in Navajo nations and with Native Americans in general. So if you're looking for ways to help people or give back, they're a great organization to get tied up with. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Katie, did you have thoughts you wanted to add onto this discussion of the Settlement Act? Not many. I just I think it's great that there's, you know, could have $210 million allocated for water projects. I'm interested to see where this goes in the future. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal, and we'll be keeping our pulse on it on our brand's website so viewers can look for some updates on the progress of this act down the line, and uh, we'll try to keep informing you on that. So finally, our interview this month is with Cynthia Kohler. She's the Executive Director of the Water Now Alliance. And Katie talked to her a little bit about the Tap into Resilience Initiative, Green Infrastructure, and the Coronavirus Stimulus Package. So here's that interview. Hello, everyone. I am here today with Cynthia Kohler, Executive Director of the Water Now Alliance. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Katie. It's a delight to be here. Great. So we will go ahead and jump right in. Um, First, I just wanted to know if you can tell us what the Water Now Alliance does and what its goals are. Water Now Alliance is a national network of water utility leaders, so drinking water, wastewater, stormwater, um, who are working to advance sustainable and climate resilient and affordable and really innovative water management strategies. So we work with mayors, city council members, special district directors, you know, anybody who is in a leadership decision-making position in their community um, to um, advance um, innovative and sustainable strategies. So a lot of what we do is provide opportunities for those leaders to connect with one another, with resources, with um, experts in the field, so that they have all the information they need to guide their communities in the most effective way going forward. So what does that really mean? We really have three buckets of work. We, um, we are conveners, so we do a lot of webcasts. We have an annual summit. Um, we have a lot of opportunities for, you know, touching these leaders and keeping them informed. And we also do um, uh, technical uh, assistance on the ground. So we have our Project Accelerator, which has been up and running now for a couple of years, where communities come to us and say, you know, there's this project, there's this initiative we want to get underway, but we don't have all the expertise or all the capacity of all the resources we need, and we provide them um, services to get that project underway, whatever that is. Um, and then we're also, we also do very strategically targeted policy advocacy in certain areas. So a lot of what we do is work with um, state and um, local agencies to eliminate barriers to innovation. So a lot of our work has been around financing. How can we clear pathways so that these utilities have access not just to their traditional forms of financing, but also um, newer and more, um, more creative and more flexible means of financing some of these more innovative solutions? 
Um, so all of those all of those strategies work together to help advance a more climate resilient and affordable approach to water across the nation. Very cool. And you guys have an initiative called Tap Into Resilience, correct? Exactly, yes. And can you explain um, what that initiative is, please? Yes, absolutely. So a big the, where we see real opportunity um, in the water space is in decentralized, you know, on-site um, strategies that can be distributed widely over, over communities. Now, some of that, Katie, is stuff that utilities have been doing for years, right? The original distributed infrastructure are, um, you know, high-efficiency toilet rebate programs. A lot of utilities, particularly in the West where water is scarce, have had those kinds of programs in place for a long time. But if you look at what's happening in the water space, the opportunity for these localized and on-site systems has grown exponentially. Now we're talking about, you know, a whole new generation of water use efficiency measures, leak detection controllers, um, you know, smart irrigation, I'm sorry, leak detection devices, smart irrigation controllers, um, you know, turf replacement programs. There are all kinds of things that basically turn an entire community into a water supply, um, you know, option, not just um, our more conventional options. And in the green infrastructure space, the opportunities um, in that same kind of decentralized, uh, for those same kinds of decentralized strategies is also growing rapidly. We are finding that um, the conventional systems, you know, building deep tunnels, they are effective, but they're also expensive, and they don't do the whole job. So more and more across the country, we're seeing communities turning to these localized systems, whether it's permeable pavers or green roofs or rain gardens. All of these things across the community um, serve the same functions as centralized water infrastructure. Okay, so how does that relate to tap into resilience? Tap into resilience is all about taking those solutions and socializing them, sort of making them the, the new default, the new normal, taking them from, you know, sort of marginal, oh, here's a little, you know, demonstration project we're going to do, to putting them right in the center of your capital planning, your budgeting, you know, your bond issuances. So, so we're basically, the whole point of it is to expand um, the opportunities available to water utilities to address their water supply, water quality, and stormwater challenges. So tap into resilience is a whole soup to nuts set of resources for utilities to move in that direction. We're focused primarily on um, financing again, also addressing some of the technical issues, legal issues. So we have a whole dedicated website called Tap into Resilience that is kind of the one-stop shop for any utility nationally that wants to figure out, you know, what are the options for my community to expand our strategies, um, to look into how we can do more with these decentralized options. Okay. And from your perspective, how important are initiatives like this to the water industry and to utilities? Uh, well, I'd like to think they're extremely important and <laughs> very valuable um, because, you know, I've been to a number of conferences where I'll talk, for example, about some of the um, financing that is now available um, to um, to do these programs because what we've heard from utilities over time is, well, yeah, sure, I would like to do more, you know, with green infrastructure or I'd like to expand, you know, my um, my rebates for irrigation controllers, but I really don't have the money. You know, where am I going to find the money to do that? And what we have said is, well, where do you find the money to do all of your other long-term investments? You know, utilities, you know, are very, very good at long-term planning. You know, they all, you know, there's all sorts of, um, you know, capital plans and, you know, 
um, you know, general plans. I mean, there's many, many um, opportunities for, well, requirements, I should say, for utilities to be planning for the future, right? Um, and they know how to do that. For the most part, they float municipal bonds and they invest in whatever their conventional infrastructure is. Perhaps they'll go to the federal, uh, to the state government and get a state revolving fund loan, um, which derives from the Clean Water Act. Or maybe they'll go to the federal government and, you know, seek WIFIA funds under the Water Infrastructure um, Act. So there's a lot of opportunities, but they are perceived to be primarily for conventional built infrastructure. So a lot of what we have worked on is opening those um, opportunities for capital so that utilities can invest, can see these distributed systems as infrastructure in the same way right alongside their conventional systems. So our, so I think the, to answer your question about the value, it's all about expanding opportunities and expanding, um, you know, the options for utilities to address their very specific problems. So um, we think these kinds of, but at the same time, it's a change, right? So we think these kinds of resources, really walking utilities through how to get from where they are to where they want to go is very valuable. So one of the great innovations that we have on the Tap into Resilience as part of the Tap into Resilience program is an expert portal because not everything can be, you know, found on a website. You know, we think our website is very rich and very deep. We've got all kinds of case studies so that people see that they're not alone. This is happening. But we, what we also know is that different communities need different kinds of expertise because they have different kinds of problems and barriers. So we've actually gathered a cohort of over two dozen experts. So this is bond counsel, auditors, you know, financial advisors, um, you know, technical experts, and they've all um, signed up to provide a certain number of hours pro bono to the Tap into Resilience Initiative. So if you are a water leader or a water manager, you know, or whatever level you're at in your utility or your town or your community, um, you can go onto our website and say, here's my particular problem, and I need to talk to, you know, an expert about that, and we'll connect you with somebody. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a process, but within a couple days, you know, um, we'll have somebody give you a call, and you can have a certain number of hours for free of that expert's time to help you start thinking through that issue. So we're really trying to be very holistic in the way that we're providing support to these utilities. Um, the other way that we do provide that support, circling back to our technical assistance, is we do have our project accelerator program. So if there's a utility that says, you know what, we're ready to go, um, but we're going to need a little bit of hand-holding, we're going to need a little bit of additional capacity, we're right there to help them with that as well. Okay. And, you know, you kind of talked about how, you know, you would say utilities, well, how do you get these other projects done? So what advice do you give to, to those utilities to make sure that they do have room to expand these, on these projects? Right. So one of the biggest innovations that we've, you know, that we're, we're excited about is um, we have often heard, as I started to say, utilities will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm paying for these rebate programs, you know, whether it's, you know, turf replacement or whether it's permeable pavers or whether it's, you know, biofills or rain gardens or, you know, like I mentioned, irrigation controllers or whatever it is, we're paying for all of these consumer-facing, business-facing um, rebates out of our operating cash. And that limits us, right, because operational funds, that comes out of our rates, and that's how we pay for all of our annual expenses, you know, our salaries, our chemicals, all of the things we need to do to operate, and there's not a lot of room there to be investing in these long-term programs. To that, we say, that is absolutely right. You shouldn't be spending your operating, cap your operating cash on that. You should be investing. These are long-term investments, right? People do not, um, you know, put in permeable pavers and, you know, new high-efficiency water appliances or replace lead lines every year. These are, these are long-term investments and should be treated like capital 
right next to your long-term investments in conventional infrastructure. So one of the biggest things we've been able to do in the last couple of years is eliminate a critical accounting barrier. Um, there are, I'll, I'll spare you all of the accounting rules that are involved here, but um, is a general, just at a high level, um, generally in order to borrow, right, to use municipal uh, bond proceeds, you need to have an asset of some kind. And that has traditionally been defined as some kind of fixed asset. And that's why you have many, many, and it's not just utilities, local governments all over the country, just take it as a given that you can only invest debt in conventional fixed assets. Well, the um, the Accounting uh, Standards Board, the General Accounting, the Governmental Accounting Standards Board, known as GASB, um, they have an alternative accounting method for exactly this kind of situation that allows you, um, public entities, it's not just utilities, of course, to um, uh, to invest capital even in in long-term investments, even if they don't result in fixed assets. Does that make sense? Are you following me so far? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay. So our big innovation uh, with them is they issued guidance just two years ago now that said specifically for water utilities, saying you know if you uh, if you meet the particular requirements, you know the eligibility requirements for this alternative accounting approach, um, which is their statement 62, not to get too technical, um, mm-hmm. then yes. Rebates going to consumers, you know, whether it's business or other institutions or, you know, private residences, you know, or even direct um, utility uh, installations, right, for low-income families, utilities will sometimes want to um, directly install, uh, you know, these um, distributed um, strategies because rebates require uh, upfront funding. Um, So the Accounting Standards Board has said, you know, you can use this alternative that does not require a fixed asset. All you need to have is a governing board that is authorized legally to set rates, and that governing board says, yes, we are going to you know, develop, you know, establish a rate structure so that we can ensure that those funds are repaid. So, again, I don't want to get too technical here, but that's really a game changer, right? If you can mm-hmm. now access your municipal bond proceeds for these other kinds of long-term investments, now you've opened up a whole new source of capital that until very recently was not considered available for um, these kinds of investments, right? Now you can access, now you can take, let's say, you know, a mod- you're always going to need your municipal bond financing for your bigger capital, right? Just like you take out a mortgage for your home. Nobody pays for your house, well, very few people, <laughs> pay for your whole house in one year. And local governments don't pay for big ticket investments all in one year. This is you know, this is the value of having the opportunity to amortize costs over a long period of time. You're able to avoid rate shock and really um, create some generational equity, right? The investments that you make today that are going to last 20, 30 years, you know, there's no reason for all for the rate payers today to pay for all of that. So you really want to be having your long investment, you know, your long-term investments paid for over time. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So now we have added to that to that universe. This, the opportunity to, to um, treat as longer-term investments these, um, these distributed and on-site and localized strategies, right? So now you have a whole new source of capital for those, which really opens the door to utilities um, and you know, communities nationwide to be investing in those at a much higher scale than they have traditionally. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you for that. And sure. kind of switching gears a little bit, I know the Tap into Resilience Initiative talked um, talks a bit about green infrastructure. So what are some of the biggest benefits to implementing green infrastructure and how have you seen, you know, those implementations evolve over time? 
Sure. And I'd say green infrastructure is um, sort of the, um, the uh, you know, a particular category of decentralized on-site infrastructure that really has grown tremendously, I would say, in the last couple of decades. We're seeing cities – so this is mainly a way of dealing with stormwater issues. And if you're familiar with stormwater runoff challenges, you know, the issue is, um, you know, not only urban flooding and basement backups as stormwater and, you know, in combined sewer systems, um, but also the issue of, um, uh, you know, polluting um, discharge, you know, to the water bodies that wastewaters and stormwaters are discharged to. So it's a very significant issue. And as communities, um, primarily in the east, I would say, with older infrastructure, um, have been struggling with this, they have turned increasingly to these green solutions. So what we have seen is that um, by moving to these greener solutions, and the idea of green infrastructure, green stormwater infrastructure in particular, is that it is a way of working with natural systems or mimicking natural systems to address stormwater runoff issues. So we're seeing cities like Philadelphia and Milwaukee making multiple billion-dollar investments in green strategies, like and it's and it's and the key to these is that there are many of them, and they are distributed across the community. So green roofs, permeable pavers, bioswales, these are all ways of capturing stormwater, rainwater, and slowing its um, its path, right, and um, bringing it, um, you know, into the ground as opposed to running off into sewers and into bays and estuaries. So the advantage of having widespread distribution of these kinds of solutions is that you have much more opportunity to capture, to be effective. The other advantage of green infrastructure is um, on the economics and job side. And this is something we're just now reaching out to Congress to think about as they're looking at more, you know, the next wave of um, recovery legislation and also infrastructure legislation that's pending. Because the opportunities there on the job front and the economic development front are very high and have not been really tapped yet. I mean, when you think about it, these are the kinds of solutions that, you know, there are really going to be permanent jobs. Milwaukee did a study and, and um, just in its region alone estimated hundreds of permanent jobs in maintenance and construction um, from, putting, you know, from putting in these kinds of systems. Because, again, you're touching many, many properties over a long region, and then they all need to be maintained. So the economic development opportunity associated with green infrastructure is very high. Um, and then there are also studies that are demonstrating lots of other co-benefits. Um, green infrastructure by its nature greens communities, right? You're putting in more trees, more parks, more, um, more plantings of various kinds. So you're creating um, you know, a more healthful, a more um, you know, beautiful, you know, you're improving your community in many ways. There have also been studies showing that green infrastructure actually um, increases property values. And, um, you know, most um, wonderfully from the perspective of equity and affordability, green infrastructure is, or, is often much less expensive. You know, these are solutions that, uh, that you, know, uh, are, you know, you're going to compare them to your, you know, multi-billion dollar tunnels, which, again, I'm, we, there's a lot of need for, uh, for gray conventional infrastructure. Um, but the idea with these solutions is to expand options and to give communities the opportunity to look at what combination of different kinds of infrastructure are going to best fill their needs. So, yeah, so we feel that green infrastructure to address stormwater has so much potential to help communities on a, on a variety of levels. So we're excited about it. Awesome. And speaking of, you know, green infrastructure, you, uh, Cynthia, recently contributed an op-ed to the Philadelphia Inquirer 
um, kind of stating that um, how coronavirus stimulus packages should help green water infrastructure. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So that's an opinion editorial. We were very happy to be in the Philadelphia Inquirer last week, and that's an editorial that I wrote with um, one of our collaborators, um, Howard um, Newkrug, who is um, the director of the Water Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so what we were uh, uh, suggesting in that was, as I was starting to say, is that um, this is a is a wonderful opportunity for uh, the federal government to provide support for um, local utilities, cities, towns, and special districts to increase their investment in these kinds of, uh, of strategies and green infrastructure in, in particular. Philadelphia has been a leader in green infrastructure that had a program in place for the last 10 years, and they anticipate, as I mentioned, a multi-billion dollar investment. investment. Um, however, um, finding the financing for that has been um, challenging you know, to do that because of the um, perceived barriers to investing capital um, in these kinds of solutions. So um, part of what we're suggesting in that editorial is this, these um, recovery packages <clears throat> and the infrastructure um, package that's also being developed um, is a perfect opportunity for the federal government to make their loan and grant programs available for these kinds of solutions, particularly because you do have the triple benefit. You're not only addressing your water management um, challenges, but you are creating jobs, you are creating economic stimulus, and third, you are providing you know, enormous co-benefits to the community in terms of public health, um, greening, and affordability. So we're, you know, we were really urging um, Congress, and uh, we'll be following up with specific recommendations, to use this opportunity to really, um, I wouldn't say prioritize, but to put maybe on par these kinds of solutions with more conventional 20th century um, public works projects, because it's just a, it's just a great opportunity, um, you know, right now that we have. Gotcha. Well, Cynthia, those were my questions for you. But is there anything else you want to add that we haven't touched on today? Um, sure. I think maybe circling back a little bit to tap into resilience, I would I would yeah. uh, urge your your listeners to take a look at that website. Part of what we're doing there, it's not static; it's an ever growing um, resource. So part of what we're looking for is what questions are we answering for you well, and what questions do you need more information about, and what are we not talking about yet? Right? We're we're really trying to build a national conversation around this idea of becoming more resilient and in a much bigger way um, taking advantage of these localized and on-site options. So, um, you know, uh, the other aspect of the website that we didn't really touch on are the case studies. There are a lot of communities all over the country that are starting to experiment with these solutions. So um, they're, not, uh, they're not really fringe anymore, right? We're trying to make the case that um, these are solutions that are ready for their, for their big moment. They need to come out from the edges where they've been demonstration projects or, or low-scale, you know, uh, low-level projects, and really the time to scale them up is now. So these case studies are really intended to show that um, you know the demonstrations are being successful, and they are uh, they are proving successful not only from a technical viability but also financially. Over and over again, we're seeing the same story. Particularly here, I will shift maybe a little bit to the um, water supply, um, you know, the water use efficiency space. Um, over and over again, there are communities that you can see in our case studies like 
Westminster, Colorado, and Tucson, Arizona, and, and um, even L.A., where big investments in water use efficiency have saved millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars, in ratepayer funds. And we all know that right now people are really hurting. So anything that winds up providing you with that same level of service while, recruit, while keeping your rates lower is, is essential. So I think that's part of the story we're trying to tell here is that um, these are no longer um, you know, fringe uh, opportunities, but really the time to bring them into the mainstream and put them right on par with um, our conventional ways of doing things is is right now. So um, we're excited about this initiative. We're always looking for new partners. So I would encourage any of your listeners to reach out to me, um, either directly at WaterNow, ck at, uh, at waternow.org is the best way to reach me, um, or check out our website and reach us that way as well. But um, we're excited about the opportunities and um, look forward to working with uh, you know with everybody in moving this forward. Awesome. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope you stay well. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Have a good day. You too. Take care, Katie. You too. Thank you so much for that interview, Cynthia. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners uh, will enjoy it as well. Um, before we wrap up, we do have a few housekeeping items to take care of. And the first one is that SWS is still accepting abstracts for the Stormwater Pavilion at IBS 2021. So you can come share your stormwater expertise with the home building industry. You can submit your abstracts by visiting bit.ly slash IBS Stormwater Abstracts. And secondly, um, SWS and WWD have top project nominations open. And for SWS, you can submit those at bit.ly slash SWS top projects. And Bob will tell you about WWD. Yeah, actually, I have two quick things. So for the top projects for WWD, we have extended the deadline for nominations for those until June 26th. Link to go to if you want to nominate a project for either municipal water and wastewater or industrial water and wastewater, go to bit.ly slash WWD top projects to nominate today. And also we have just released our coronavirus report in which we broke down the results by primary job function. So you can see how different facets of the industry reacted uh, at the onset of stay-at-home orders, and shelter-in-place orders. You can access that by going to bit.ly slash WWD COVID report. And WQP also has our coronavirus market impact report uh, available for viewing. You can find that at bit.ly slash WQP COVID report. Thank you for everyone who contributed their insights to that. And SWS also has a COVID-19 impact report that is live, and you can visit that by visiting bit.ly slash SWS COVID-19 report. That's all for today, so thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And if you have any feedback, you can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. And you can engage with us on Twitter at... PUW Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone.